You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things in store for you. First, I'm joined in the studio with Dr. Sven Olson. Dr. Olson is the Chief Fellow of Hematology Oncology at OHSU, and he's going to take us through a paper entitled A Phase Three Randomized Trial of Voxelator in Sickle Cell Disease. This drug has a great name, Voxelator, but is this data ready for U.S. Food and Drug Administration accelerated approval? Question mark. We're going to talk about that on this week's episode. Next, I have a far-reaching interview with none other than David Steensma. Dr. Steensma from the DFCI came out here to Portland, Oregon, delivered a fantastic grand rounds, and sat down with us in the plenary session studio for a nearly two-hour interview. We talk about many topics, and I think you're going to find this of great interest. So, stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Sven Olson also known as Sven Jammin on Twitter. Wow. I, I can't remember the last time I posted anything on my Twitter, so I'm surprised you know that. I like to keep uh, handles at the front of my mind. So re- I recently had to submit a paper, and actually they asked for my Twitter handle. That was new. That's good. They want to promote it. That way your paper goes from a readership of just you and Dr. Schatzel to a few other people. <laughs> a few other people might read it that way. Well, Dr. Olson, it's good to have you back on the plenary session stage. You've been here before, have you not? Yeah, thanks for having me back again. This is fun. Yeah, you're, you're now, you've been promoted since we last spoke. You are the chief fellow. One of two. One of two chief fellows. Yes. And the denominator, remind me, Dr. Olson, is what's the denominator? Twelve. No, of the of the people who could potentially be chief, who's at risk of being chief. Ah, uh, four. Four per group. So you're in the 50 percentile that is chief. I'll take it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a glass half full, literally. Yes. All right, so you're the chief fellow. The denominator is not all the fellows. It's just the, just the ones eligible for at risk of being chief. At risk. Yeah, at risk. That's the, that's the trial term. So you're back here on the stage. And what were the last ones we talked about? We talked about caplicizumab. And we talked about using DOAX for VTE prophylaxis. Oh, and prophylaxis. Cancer. That's yep. right. That's uh, that was one with that, with that number needed to treat of cash money for the company. That's the number needed to treat. All that matters is money. And uh, and the capitalismab. I think that Hercules discussion. A lot of people really liked it. I got a lot of positive feedback about it. Oh, have you had any positive feedback about your time on plenary session in your in the course of your business? Yeah, I actually had one person that uh, I went to the hemostasis thrombosis research society meeting in New Orleans a few months ago, and uh, one of the there was a grant review workshop, and one of the reviewers had said they listened to it. That was cool. That's cool. That's good. That's the that's the big leagues. Well, we have you back here now to dive once again into the world of classical hematology. It's classic, but it's certainly not benign. It's the real deal. It's the important stuff. And here we have a phase three randomized trial 
a voxellator, a voxellator. I chose to pronounce it like that. I don't know if that's right. Voxellator in sickle cell disease. So, you know, sickle cell disease, I think, is a is an interesting um, dilemma in medicine because it's been quite a long time that we've known the precise genetic basis of sickle cell disease. How many mutations contribute to sickle cell disease, Dr. Olson? One. One. That's right. A single point mutation leads to sickle cell disease and this hemoglobinopathy. And you'd think that with just one mutation, they'd be able to solve that problem fast. But what have they done? They've not been able to solve the problem despite all these many years. But now at last I read something. Well, I was watching 60 Minutes with, um, with Dr. Tisdale, who used to be one of my attendings when I was at the NH- NHLBI. And he's talking about some of the advances they have in gene therapy. So hopefully the future is looking bright. Um, but I think that's just interesting that, you know, here you have a disease that has a known genetic basis and we've known about it for decades and, and still not really been able to make a, a, a serious impact. Now, this article actually talks about prior to this study, um, there are only two approved agents for sickle cell disease mm-hmm. um, and painful vasoocclusive crises. And those two medicines are what, Dr. Olson? Hydroxyurea. Hydroxyurea. Um, which I, I learned actually uh, didn't come into use until late 80s, mid 90s. I see. I thought it was much earlier than that. but um, And then the other one is more recent, the L-glutamine trial, which came out in New England Journal a few years ago. Oh, I see. L-glutamine. Yeah. So that's um, that's just an amino acid. It is indeed. But it's only one of the uh, enantiomers of it. Is that right? Correct. They would have you believe that that specific one is the one that you need. And and you don't want the other enantiomer. Apparently. So if you would eat a racemic mixture, getting the same amount of the particular enantiomer you'd need, would that be as good? I don't know, but, but, it, we, but it wouldn't be as patentable. No, <laughs> yeah, it's not as it's not as lucrative if you were to happen to do that. But we wouldn't know the answer to that question. Um, and now let's talk about hydroxyurea. Hydroxyurea is an old drug. It's a cheap drug. Um, it's the thing that in I mean most people will know it as the thing that stands in the way of ruxolitinib. Is that, <laughs> is that not fair to say? Yeah, for not for sickle cell, but yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> but for uh, for other myeloproliferative neoplasms, the only, um, the, in fact, I, I would suspect if you worked at the Insight Corporation, you would view it as a as an as a hindrance <laughs> to your market share. It's nothing but a liability. And you know, interestingly, I don't think the makers of hydroxyurea would ever sponsor a disease awareness campaign on General Hospital, as we saw with uh, no, the makers not. of ruxolitinib, which is something that we wrote about in in JAM a few years ago. So. Now this is the third drug, Voxellator. Voxellator. What do we need to know about this drug? What do we need to know about this New England Journal paper? Um, well, as you said, you know the the ways we treat sickle cell is basically just trying to mitigate uh, the complications, but curing it is basically down to bone marrow transplant or maybe gene therapy. And so we try to basically uh, reduce the sequelae of it, which is most importantly for the patient, uh, these vaso-occlusive episodes. So hydrea works, L-glutamine works, and now there's a couple other strategies that try to either interfere with how the red cells and the leukocytes and the platelets of the neutrophils all adhere to the endothelium and cause occlusion, or in this case, to just boost the ability of your sickled hemoglobin to actually bind oxygen and then sickle less. So there was a trial two years ago, this crizinlizumab, which is a P-selectin inhibitor, uh, which reduces, seem to reduce vaso-occlusive episodes, and that was a phase two trial. The plenary at ASH has yet to make it to market, um, but that's one strategy. And now this is kind of a newer one, where instead of increasing the fetal hemoglobin with hydrea, which is more oxygen uh, avid, you just boost the oxygen affinity of the existing sickled hemoglobin, and that's what voxellator seems to do. So it's a 
small molecule that increases the oxygen binding ability of your hemoglobin S. I see. That's the putative mechanism of action. And in this randomized controlled trial, the authors asked the important question, if you take buxellator, what's the, the absolute most important question? Does your composite endpoint of acute chest, painful sickle crises, and all-cause mortality improve? That's what I would like to see, but that <laughs> wasn't the primary endpoint. Oh, here. shoot. Okay. <laughs> oh, that wasn't the primary. Okay. Oh, well, then the primary endpoint must have been, it must have been, um, uh, the primary endpoint obviously then would be the incidence over the next year of vasoclusive crisis. Not yet either. Okay. Oh, okay. So then it must have been... Um, mortality? Yeah, nope. All-cause mortality? No. Okay. Boy, all right, let's see. What could the primary endpoint have been? Could it have been um, the the percent of people who um, you know no longer require transfusion in the next year? They're just transfusion-free. Uh, that was a endpoint. Uh-huh, but not the primary. I see. Let's let, Maybe we'll call it hemoglobin response. Responders are not responders. There that's you a, go. That's a nice dichotomous. And let's say hemoglobin response is an increase of, let's say, 1.0 grams per deciliter. Just a nice one. That's it. You nailed it. That's nice. It's very interesting because uh, taking care of hospitalized patients, I've seen a lot of hemoglobin responses just from rechecking that CBC. Yeah, fluids and this and that. Yeah, that can all affect it. It can all affect it, yeah. Okay, so if the primary endpoint was a percent of people whose hemoglobin went up one gram per deciliter. And somewhere in this paper, the authors wrote, um, there's a reason for that. It's a bunch of evidence that suggests the hemoglobin has to do with the rate at which you have long-term complications uh, in natural history studies, and that's absolutely true. But I don't think anyone has shown that augmenting the hemoglobin by 1.0 um, actually changes any of that natural history. Um, in fact, I think I would call it an unvalidated surrogate endpoint. I think more uh, validated than that is the fact that if you have markers of hemolysis chronically, that seems to correlate with a lot of bad things in sickle cell, like pulmonary hypertension. And, you know, that's a reasonable thing to look for. But, um, yeah, I don't know. The hemoglobin of one point is kind of low. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a three-arm randomized trial. Voxelator at its two doses, 1,500 milligrams or 900 milligrams, or placebo. Mm-hmm. It, um, it, and it enrolled patients who were hospitalized with vasoocclusive crises. In other words, it enriched for those most vulnerable sickle cell patients in whom you would really want a drug to kind of change their natural history. Is that right? Well, it was people who had a history, uh, not currently hospitalized, but they'd had at least one and up to 10 vasoocclusive episodes in the last year. Uh -huh. But how far out of the hospitalization did they have to be? Two weeks. Two weeks. And then how far out of a transfusion did they have to be? 60 days. 60 days. That'd be 60 days since their last transfusion. They could not be chronically transfused, and we do that for people with uh, who've had a stroke or who've had acute chest sometimes. Um, but they could receive transfusions on the study. I see, once they were on it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting. So then if you were to ask me what you're really enriching for, by not picking them up on the indexed hospitalization, by not enrolling patients at that moment and waiting 14 days, and then waiting another 60 days from blood transfusion, I suspect what you're enriching for is um, perhaps not the most vulnerable patients with sickle cell disease, but perhaps a fraction of patients who, although still vulnerable, um, may be more compliant, more likely to follow up in clinic, more likely to um, be be very motivated to take this pill, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 God forbid, you know, results like this might 
perhaps even wrongfully be extrapolated to just kind of adding this uh, on the med list of everyone who you're discharging from painful vasoclusive crisis. Uh, God forbid they'd be sort of unscrupulous marketing aiming for that population uh, and then forcing people to get that one med reef, one med fill, uh, knowing that maybe a high proportion may not continue to take the medicine. But anyway, that's just a kind of classic trousmanship. I mean, I, I would say that it's even hard to get uh, people to consistently take hydrea. You know, all the time people come into the hospital here with sickle cell crises and you ask them whether they've been taking their hydrea and, you know, they say yes or no, but you can easily tell if you look at their MCV. And, and most what's of the, the time, telltale sign? If it's a macrocytosis, yeah. that's hydrea, but the telltale well, I sign. feel like more times than not, they're not taking it. And so even something as, you know, allegedly simple as hydrea is hard to do, so. And I wonder, I mean, part of the reason is, and I, of course, I'd, I think that, I don't fault anyone for not taking the medicine because I think usually when people don't take medicines, it's because the medicine, like, you know, people don't feel as if it's offering benefit. And I think part of the reason why they might feel that way is that even if you take hydroxyurea perfectly, you can still have vasoclusive crises. Right. Um, it's just less in frequency than if you weren't to take, to take it. Mm-hmm. But from the point of view of somebody living in their own body, that might be very difficult to kind of tell. Um, you know, you may be, it may be on the law of averages and you may not feel it for yourself. Next, there may be some inconvenience or side effect of taking the medicine. Certainly, um, it's not always so easy to take it because the doctor sees you again and again and checks your blood, makes sure your neutrophils aren't too low and those kinds of things. So it does kind of imp- impose a therapeutic burden. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that, um, yeah. you know, it's sort of similar to people with hemophilia who are on prophylactic factor you know that's maybe a little more dramatic when they get a really bad bleed and you know they notice if they all of a sudden go on uh heme libra and they get a huge reduction in their bleeds into their into their knees that's a big a big benefit for them because they don't have to uh transfuse themselves all sorts of factor all the time this is sort of similar uh you know it's a it's a number mostly on a trial that you see they they have one or two less vasoocclusive episodes per year but i could see it being on hydrea with sickle cell and you get a, a pain crisis anyway, you know, you're going to think, well, what am I doing this for? Right. And you're not going to worry about the, well, I reduced my number of crises by two. Right, you know? right, right. I think that's probably accurate. Um, okay, but fair to say that the other approved agents in sickle cell disease have actually been shown to improve the endpoint of vasoclusive crises. Mm-hmm. Okay, and here we just have hemoglobin response, so that one gram. I thought the waterfall plot was quite interesting in the paper. Uh, because it shows that if you got placebo, your subsequent blood checks were either higher or lower. It's kind of it shows kind of regression to the mean or something like that. Yeah, and there's some response on placebo just by chance alone. Right, which is what we were talking about. Where you know if you just remeasure a hemoglobin half the time, it's probably going to change. <laughs> right. Um, in fact, actually, I bet that shows more than half the time, and it changes one way or the other. And I mean, the way they it helps to know the way they calculate the change in the hemoglobin. So they basically took the means of I think two measurements around enrollment, and then the means of like the week twenty and week twenty four hemoglobin, and those were the endpoints. That's it. I see. Right, so it right. wasn't like a long uh, period of measuring their averages or anything. It was just two values. Um, but before we started, you said you, when you started reading this paper, you're like, huh, this is not that interesting. But by the time you finished, you actually found some things that you thought were highly promising. Yeah. I mean, um, when I looked for this, I looked for this exact same endpoints that you just mentioned. So vasoocclusive episodes, mortality, things like that. Um, and I didn't see that. It was a secondary endpoint and cutting ahead a little bit. It had a, a trend toward reduced vasoocclusive episodes by like, I think, 2.7 a year in the treatment arms and maybe 3.2 in the placebo arm. So it was a trend and the curves in the supplement do kind of separate out a little bit. But, um, so I thought at first, well, what am I going to do with this? Uh, it's not gonna really help the patient and what matters most to them. 
But, um, you know, as I read more about this, I, I have to be honest, I learned more about the correlation between hemolysis and endpoints uh, like pulmonary hypertension and, you know, end organ damage over time. And I think that as they seem to then lean on pretty heavily is that they will be doing an extension study uh, where they look at longer term endpoints of hemolysis and perhaps things like pulmonary hypertension and also a vaso-occlusive episodes. And maybe over time, if you reduce those things, you could actually see a benefit in things like, you know, mortality that we actually care about. So, um, you know, the editorial that came along with this was, eh, it, it didn't really have any big opinion one way or another, but it, it did say this is promising in those seem, in those areas, so. I have a quote here from some of the editorial, uh, not interesting at all, end quote. Do you know who might have said that? <laughs> was that you who wrote an editorial? No, it was my editorial. <laughs> if I wrote it, it would be not, not at all interesting. Um, so... I guess I'd say uh, that's I think that's fair because I guess I would say I read this and I say, you know, um, how can I put it? When I read this study, do I think, boy, this drug should be FDA approved? The answer, I think, is no. Do I think this drug uh, should change practice tomorrow? I think the answer is no. But do I think that this drug is worth studying in sort of a well-done, large, randomized trial? I think the answer is yes. And I think in part because indirect Billy was improved. Um, measures of metrics of hemolysis and of uh, and erythropoietin levels actually fell, mm-hmm. suggesting that the body's revved up EPO uh, factory RBC generation factory that was slowed because perhaps ongoing chronic hemolysis was minimized. And the reason I should say the reason they checked the EPO as far as I could tell was actually not to really say that uh, what your kind of bone marrow was doing, but I think they were somewhat worried. This is one interesting thing from the editorial. They were somewhat concerned that. If they increase oxygen affinity of your hemoglobin S, are you going to impair oxygen delivery to your tissues by just having it hang on too tightly? Uh, right. So they worried that, well, let's measure the EPO and see if As it's a all test of a sudden of the, tissue delivery. Right. 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 And so they said, look, the EPO was at baseline about the same, and it kind of didn't, it trended towards difference, but I think it wasn't significantly different in all three arms. So. I see what you're saying. The concerning fact would be if EPO shot through the roof, suggesting right. we need oxygen. Right. Right. Um, but, I mean... To me, this is just a phase two trial. The phase three trial would be powered for any of the endpoints that we actually care about. But I don't think we're going to get such a study. Well, I think what I'd want to know is right now, I don't know where I'd fit this into my treatment algorithm. So is it people, anyone with sickle cell? Because I mean, they're, they're pretty inclusive. People who've had at least one pain episode, hemoglobins from five to 10. Uh, and that's a lot of people. And, you know, would I just give this to every single person, regardless of whether they're on hydrea or not? In this trial, two-thirds of people and basically every arm were on hydrea at baseline. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, right now, I don't know if I just added on to everyone. But I think it would be helpful as if in the future they did some sort of trial where if they had people that were either intolerant or they had maxed out their dose of hydrea and they still were having a lot of episodes, what if you do this instead or right. add it? Right. And then I would say there's also a difference between being on hydrea, i.e. it's on your MAR list, and being on hydrea, yeah. i.e. your MCV is 106. Um, you, you've titrated it to your white count, uh, to your platelets. In other words, you're pushing the dose of hydrea as much as you can, mm-hmm. and you're, you're getting your hemoglobin F fraction really high. That's, I think, really being on hydrea. And the truth is, you know, it's hard to know in this trial how many people are really on hydrea. Yeah, and that's actually it'd be interesting to look at that. I don't know if it's been published or not, but seeing how many people actually do have consistent titration of their hydrea, you know, to the max tolerated dose uh, based on their cytopenias and things like that. I don't know. The other thing I have to mention here is that um, there are within the sort of hemoglobin, you know, homozygous mutation, uh, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of different phenotypes in how this shows up. 
and there's little sub phenotypes um and you know one of them is one that has less hemolysis but higher hematocrit and that seems to be correlating with more vaso-occlusive episodes that's people who have like a concurrent alpha thalassemia it's actually protective and then there's people that have uh lower hematocrit but a lot of hemolysis and less vaso-occlusive episodes and that's people that get more pulmonary hypertension and such um and so i think maybe parsing those populations out and figuring out who's actually hemolyzing a lot let's give this drug to them and see if it makes a difference versus the ones who just have you know, a higher hematocrit, more vaso-occlusion, you know, that's that's now been uh, pretty definitively shown that there's these little sub-phenotypes, and I didn't really know that as much before. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd like to see, uh, I'd like to see how they can be kind of categorized and, and then, you know, and, and see if the medicine has a medicine has a differential effect on any of those sub-phenotypes. That's interesting. Because as we've seen, you know, people come into clinic and they have homozygous sickle cell, and yet they do just fine and yeah. that might be because they're really good about avoiding you know triggers and things like that but i also have to you have to wonder if there's just a really big spectrum that you have to figure out who this drug works best for what um what other takeaway messages did you come away with from this paper we talked about a bunch of them i think the endpoints and the uh, yeah um you said they, trend to significance. I'll let the statisticians sort you out about this trending business. Well, I'll, I'll let them sort you out. More, I mean, I looked at the curves. The curves, the, you know, if you use the 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 laser pointer rule. Of yeah, you, you can fit a laser pointer. You could easily fit a laser pointer in you there. You can fit a laser pointer. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do a randomized trial of four people, two in each <laughs> arm, and I'll show you how you can fit laser pointers real easy in that kind of curve. All right, but all right. This seemed to be, I, I should say, it seemed to be well tolerated. That's uh, a stock oh, phrase. Yeah, who's paying these. you to say that? But, you <laughs> That's know, an empty stock uh, phrase. Yeah, based on what they report, it was mostly grade one to two. It was mostly headache and diarrhea from what they could sell. But um, let me put it to you this way about that. I mean, I'll say the flip side of it is, you know, like when we talk about grade of toxicity, where did that come from? I don't know if it gets talked about that much, but like I think the primary place in which we talked a lot about grading of toxicity is in the administration of IV cancer drugs were administered on a cyclical basis. And in that case, you're getting a drug every three weeks. What you really care about is the rates of grade or three, four toxicity, um, knowing that they'll last for a few days and then get better. But that's really kind of what makes those drugs intolerable or not. And grade one to two toxicity, often quite manageable on the course of every three weeks. It's only a couple days. Um, but then we moved to that era of oral targeted cancer drugs and some drugs with grade one toxicity or diarrhea. Yeah. They can really be intolerable because grade one toxicity every day, day in and day mm -hmm. out, the rest of your life is really kind of often miserable. And this is a drug I think that's got maybe two things going against it. One, um, you know, it does have some grade one, two toxicity. They're not pleasant things to experience, diarrhea and headache. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think it's got going against it is, you know, you do have some signal with the hydroxyurea that people, there's a high bar to clear in order to get people to actually be compliant with your medications. And if somebody's taking a pill that may improve their um, hemoglobin by one point on the test, improve hemolysis measures, mm -hmm. may or may not increase vasoclusive crises, uh, and giving them a headache, they're probably going to throw that pill in the trash. Yeah, most likely. I mean, I've actually anecdotally seen a lot of people now on the glutamine. And oh, yeah. even though it seems like it's just this, you can go to GNC and buy a tub of glutamine. Uh, racemic, of course. That's, yeah, that's of course, the, that's of course. the poisonous racemic. But uh, even yeah. the, the the labeled indication and the the prescription one, it's kind of I've seen a lot of people be miserable on it. It causes really? a lot of um, uh, GI toxicity, and even in the trial, it causes extremity pain, which is confusing because that's what vasoocclusive pain sounds like. <laughs> right, but yeah. people actually do come in and they say, ah, I kind of like ache all day. I say, which seems backwards, but yeah, these um these things you take every day could certainly be. A problem if they even cause these small small side effects okay anything else 
I don't think so. Uh, we'll see what this extension study shows. I'd be curious to see that. Um, if it actually has some other endpoints and how long they follow them for. I think, you know, you're giving them some clues, which is you could have potentially chosen to go after a um, hemolysis phenotype power, your study for rates of pulmonary hypertension or those kinds of complications down the road. Uh, that might be another way to kind of pursue this drug. I think y you and I will both agree, biologically, it's kind of interesting what it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's biologically plausible to help. Mm -hmm. um, just like, you know, you could, you could reason someone would say, well, if we can increase the fetal hemoglobin, why don't we just increase the ability of their own hemoglobin to work? And that makes sense. So, yeah, we'll you're see. right. But a lot yeah. of things that make sense in early phase trials don't end up panning out. As oh, we know, good. So. Good. I'm glad <laughs> that's something that that's a lesson that I try to stress. Uh -huh. Oh, the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, who, who wrote this study? Oh, of course, you know, I look at that. So... <laughs> All drafts of the manuscript, this is a quote from the paper, all drafts of the manuscript were prepared by the authors with writing assistance from a medical writer funded by the sponsor. Mm. So, so what percent author, what percent medical writer? Well, that would be nice to know, wouldn't it? So I think, I, I mean, I think when you read that, you want to you walk away with the conclusion that it's more author than medical writer. You agree? That's what they seem to, that's what I would, I'm guessing they're trying to hammer home there. But, but that might actually just be the mark of a good medical writer. The, the good medical writer is going to get you to see a read a statement in there that you think it's more author than medical writer. The That's true. The bad medical writer is the one that says this was prepared by the medical writer and the author barely did anything at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a medical writer that's worth too much, but that, you need a good medical writer because I think these messages have to be smoothed over nicely. And, you know, let me read a sentence that I think is smoothing, smoothing 101. Quote, we specifically chose to use an increase in hemoglobin level of more than one gram per deciliter as a primary endpoint because validated natural history studies indicated that an increase in hemoglobin level significantly decreases the rate of multi-organ failure and death. It's just a really nice sentence. Then you might ask follow-up questions like, oh, but did, did a one gram increase in hemoglobin level decrease the rate of multi-organ failure and death? And then the answer would, of course, be question time is over. Question time is <laughs> over and we're moving on. So I think that's a nice bit of smoothing. Uh -huh. And it's supported by Global Blood Therapeutics. I don't know who that is. Um, and uh, They have this, and then they have one other drug in the pipeline, which is kind of similar to the Crizanlizumab. It's a P-selectin inhibitor. I forgot what it's called, but it's being manufactured now, I guess. I see. So time will tell. Well, we'll see what the U.S. Food and Drug Administration does with this. So I read this as it gets me a little nervous that uh, regulatory approval is just down the road. And I hope we hold the same standard here as we do for, for hydroxyurea and for L-glutamine, mm -hmm. which is reduction in, in, in vasoclusive pain crises. I'll give them points for two things. Yeah. Voxelator is an awesome drug name. Okay, it sounds cool like name. A, a villain in like a Transformers movie or something. Voxelator. And then the name of the trial is the Hope Trial. Great, hope. Great title yeah hope yep wow uh we've had that i guess in cardiology but now it's in it's in sickle cells hope yeah uh you know years ago i think i saw like an ad for rituximab and it had this slogan at the bottom it said rituximab where hope and cd20 are found so you need both see you need the cd20 of course it's the target that doesn't really that's, but hope i don't know that's not really clever sounding you at don't all. think that's clever no where hope and cd20 are found it's good I don't know. It just seems like it's randomly thrown in there. It's not really a soundbite to me. Okay. Know? Well, here's another one I like to see in, in, in drug ads. It's one of my favorites. It says, um, it says, we have found a 6.8 month improvement in progression-free survival asterisk. Not statistically significant, but clinically meaningful. Boom. How do you like that? 
That one's better. That's a sweet. That's a sweet sound. <laughs> Not statistically significant, or they might as well just say trending too. Yes. If they had you there writing for them, trending too. Or they could just not even say anything at all and just say the numbers and leave oh, it. Oh, right, numerical. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's what a lot of people would propose. Well, we'll be back to talk about Bayesian and and uh, and and frequentist interpretation of statistics soon on a future episode of Plenary Session. But Dr. Olson, thanks so much for taking us through this little description of voxellator. Thanks, Dr. Prasad. Pleasure to have you. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. David Steensma. Dr. Steensma is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. He's on the faculty at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center. Very recently, he has taken the helm as Clinical Director of the CPOP program. Is that right, Dr. Steensma? That's right. That's the Center for Prevention of the Progression of Hematologic Malignancies. It's getting ahead of things before they start. Is that fair to say? Trying to nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure when it comes to <laughs> cancer medicine. So we'll talk about that in other things. But um, you know, I really want to thank you for coming here uh, on the podcast and, and coming here out to Oregon and giving us a fantastic grand rounds on chip this morning. Um, you know, I also I wanted to introduce you more properly, kind of say something like I said this morning, which is... You know, I, I this morning when I introduced Dr. Steensma, I called I called him an endangered species, and by that I mean I think, uh, and perhaps I'm just merely remembering history, you know, through a lens of nostalgia that, and it wasn't actually that case, but perhaps, uh, but perhaps it was, that there was a time I think at a university where the faculty of universities, um, in addition to seeing patients and um, and and doing research and teaching, um, they they probably had more time than we do today, and they probably were I don't know the financial structures of universities were different and universities might not have been trying to the same degree to maximize i think the revenue that flows through university through largely patient care and maybe clinical trials and in though in that era there was plenty of time i think for faculty to think about other topics outside of medicine and that's what i think of when i think of you dr steensma you know you're somebody who who likes to read literature likes to think about history likes to think about philosophy and insofar as possible that bleeds into your work in oncology and so i i called you an endangered species because you remind me of the true academician in, in the fullest sense of the word um, the person who really cares about knowledge and is an expert in, in one area, but um, cares about it so broadly that they consume you know, knowledge very broadly in, in whatever discipline they can. Uh, what do you think? Well, I, certainly my 17-year-old daughter would agree with you that I am kind of old-fashioned. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the generations uh, have, have a different way of viewing the world. But, uh, you know, everything is interesting, I think, if you go into it deeply enough. And uh, maybe that's not true for the electronic medical record or something, <laughs> something <laughs> right, like right, that. But, right. but uh, you know, I, I've had the chance to think about a lot of different issues in medicine over the years. And, um, and you know, to work on a lot of different uh, types of projects. And, uh, and I've enjoyed that. I, you know, I, I learn from everything and, and am always excited to start a new project and, and, and learn about something new. And, mm-hmm. um, and particularly, I've done a lot of writing over the years, mm-hmm. which I, I find... Helps you think. Helps me think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of a barometer, too, of uh, my own health. If I'm writing... A lot things are things are good. Uh, you know, I'm in a good place. If if there's a fallow period, it's usually because I'm you know trying to work through something, mm-hmm. um, and so that's been an important uh, means of expression for me over the years. 
And when you write, um, you know, which we're going to talk about some of the things you've written, you've written everything's f- everything from editorials, uh, you know, about cancer medicine, original articles, of course, um, you know, articles that have really advocated for, you know, new ways to conceptualize cancer, this sort of stock and trade that I think a lot of people do. But you're also willing to delve into the human side of oncology, telling stories of people um, who you've known over the years who may have had cancer, and not just at work, but in your personal life. Um, and, and in these stories, you intersperse things you may have read in novels, um, things you may have read in history books. Uh, you're an active reader. You read a lot outside of medicine, and, and does that shape the way you think of, of medicine and the doctor-patient interaction? It does. I love to read. And uh, actually, one of the highlights of this visit to Portland, which has been wonderful, and I'm honored to be here, I haven't seen a drop of rain since I come. It never does. Never. I think maybe it's just a rumor, you know, to to keep the place from getting too overcrowded that it's raining all the time. A beautiful sunny day here today. Um, You know, one of the highlights was going to Powell City of Books, the the famous uh, bookshop, and uh, looking around for a a few hours. And uh, you know, I just uh, again I I learn from everything, and and uh, reading has been a very um, important important thing for me to do over the years. It's been something that um, I've always wanted to understand what I do in our present era in context uh, as much as possible. And so I think that's driven a lot of that. Um, I grew up in a you know, home that was stacked with books and you know, my, my parents are both uh, very big readers. Uh, my father particularly you know, has read widely and I think uh, I got bitten by that bug very mm-hmm. very early on mm-hmm. you know I've I also enjoy I also enjoy reading um, both inside and outside of medicine and I've always told people who've asked me over the years when people ask you know like what should I be reading when I'm an intern and resident and I say you know I understand in those years life can be really busy and you may not have a whole heck of a lot of time uh, to read but even if you were able to read 15 or 20 minutes a day right before you go to bed um, and then I uh, that's something I would sort of put, advocate for and then I also say alternate a medical book with a book that has nothing to do with medicine so go go something you know like a Henry Marsh admissions and then go to a, a novel a fiction novel or something or a history book or something totally outside of what you do just to remind yourself that no matter how many hours you spend in that hospital, no matter how much of your life thinking about medicine subsumes, and it eventually kind of consumes a lot of us, and I'll, I'll admit to that it consumes my thinking, that you're still a person behind it all, and there's a value from imagining what it's like to not know anything about medicine and think about something else for a minute. You Perhaps you picked that up at uh, Hopkins, because uh, uh, that was one of Osler's practices. Really? There's this terrific biography of him, it's about ten years old now by Michael Bliss, and uh, you're saying he um, scooped me. Well, one of one of Osler's <laughs> yeah. habits uh-huh. was, uh, you know, to keep a book at his bedside, at his bedside. And, and to read for an hour before he went to bed, usually about something other than medicine, really? because of course he lived yeah. and breathed medicine the other twenty three hours of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so uh, that that's a habit you've picked up, honestly. I think. Well, yeah, <laughs> I think. Uh, well, then I, I give Osler yet another another credit goes to Osler. <laughs> Sir William, uh, you know, I think it is a good habit. Anyway, I hope listeners will get a sense of 
of that, I think, in some of the things we talk about. So I'll give listeners a little bit more background. Uh, you did your undergraduate at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, not far from where I did it. And, and you're originally from the Midwest, is that right? Um, I, I was born in New Jersey, but that oh. was an accident of the Vietnam War. I my see. parents had gone to Calvin College. All, essentially all my family's in Michigan. Uh, my father got drafted in 68 or 69 and then moved to New Jersey. I see. Um, uh, but but he, was, he was at Michigan State. Yeah, my parents live in Grand Rapids now. My sister and her family live there. I my see. wife's from northern Michigan and all of her family. So, um, you know, that I, that's home in a way. Uh, yeah, and uh, I actually went to high school not too far from there. Then you went to do your MD at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Right. You just uh, That's where I did my medical degree. And you pointed out on the wall, the diploma looks a lot the same. Years have changed, <laughs> but the font has not. Uh, you went on to do your internal medicine residency at the Mayo Clinic, where you did your Hemonc Fellowship. Um, then you did something a little bit off the beaten path. You took two years, and you went to Oxford, England. What would you do there? Well, the uh, fellowship at Mayo Clinic is very clinically heavy, and that's terrific because you get a tremendous grounding in taking care of patients. It's a four-year fellowship, at least on paper, and uh, the first three years are, are largely clinical. And so I had envisioned I wanted to be a translational researcher and realized that I would need to gain more laboratory skills than I had. And so I applied for and was received a fellowship from the Mayo Foundation that the Mayo brothers had set up uh, almost a century earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was to go away for up to two years to learn a new skill, to develop an existing skill, often used by surgeons to go somewhere for six months and learn mm -hmm. a new technique mm -hmm. and then bring it back to the clinic. Mm -hmm. um, and I went uh, to the uh, Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine uh, at the University of Oxford. It was two just tremendous years. Our children were very small at that point. Um, uh, which definitely being in another country um, with small children gives you a different perspective on mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. country than if it was just you or mm -hmm. you and your partner. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and it was also a terrific academic experience. I got there um, just as uh, Doug Higgs and his colleagues, that was the group I worked in, um, had uh, found that patients who had MDS who developed acquired alpha thalassemia mm -hmm. um, had somatic mutations in a gene called ATRX, mm -hmm. uh, which is important for globin regulation. Mm -hmm. um, and finding more mutations and exploring the consequence of that really uh, consumed the better part of the, the two years there. So it was a very fertile time to be there. Uh, Doug um, is now the director of the whole institute and uh, he has had a lifelong passion for understanding gene regulation using globin as a model system. So it very much was a, a thalassemia lab that I happened to be in as someone interested in myelodysplasia, but just exactly the right place Happen to be. to have that overlap in that, that minute, time. yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, I've made friends that I've continued to keep in touch with now, you know, 15 years later. It was really a, a fertile period. You went back to the U.S. You became faculty at the Mayo Clinic, where you where you worked for five, six, seven years before you moved to the Dana Farber Cancer Center in 2009, where you've been on faculty for a decade. During your years in Mayo Clinic, you ran a small laboratory. I did. Yeah. What What did you study? You know, I studied um, the molecular genetics of MDS. Um, 
that was the primary focus. I had initially a K award, and then we got some philanthropic funding, mm -hmm. and that was uh, how the lab was supported. But I have to say, one of my weaknesses in terms of getting interested in a lot of different things probably also uh, made it uh, more challenging to make the type of progress that w I would have liked to have made. Also, the technology wasn't mm -hmm. quite there yet to do the type of sequencing and such that we can do today. So I ended up making um, a discovery in porphyria, the first transacting form of porphyria, and uh, cloning a new translocation that turned out to be a gene of interest to nephrologists mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know got involved in a, a number of different other side projects that were probably in the end a bit more productive than the, the, the main, main project uh, which was to find new mutations in, in MDS. As is often the case the, <laughs> the thing for which you have the funding and the thing for which you receive a claim may not always be the same Ooh. thing. Um, that's interesting and then when you move to the Dana-Farber you really focused more on clinical research but of course you still Although you may not you may not run a lab, but you still keep a close eye on what's emerging from the lab in terms of new studies that may inform the treatment of MDS and AML. Uh, perhaps not today, but perhaps someday. I do. I, you know, I miss the lab in many respects. I, I really enjoyed it. There, there were certainly days in the lab that were, you know, very frustrating, and I just couldn't get wait to get back and mm -hmm. treat patients and have that connection and sort of the that immediacy gratification, yeah. of clinical medicine. Mm -hmm. But. Um, uh, when I came to Dana-Farber, uh, you know, Gary Gilliland was there, mm -hmm. and I was going to, you know, work uh, in his lab under mm -hmm. his supervision. Brilliant scientist, you know, now the CEO of Fred Hutchinson. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, just as I had signed my contract to come to Dana-Farber, uh, he announced that he was leaving. To go to Merck. He was going to Merck, right? Yeah, yeah. Merck, and then he went to Penn and then to the, the Hutch. But um, I, that was a big shock for a lot of people, including me. Um, you know, I had terrific support from Rich Stone, who is the uh, director of the leukemia program there until quite recently, Dan D'Angelo, my, my colleague, you know, also a great friend, has, has taken over the leukemia program. But you know, Rich was tremendously supportive, and the position was uh, very much a clinical research uh, position and, and clinical uh, care position then at that point, which which was was great, and that's what I've been doing for the last ten years. I see. I I mean, I feel like um, you know, although of course there's unique parts to your story, I feel like it's a story that's a bit more common, uh, yeah. which is that in order to be a, a physician scientist and have a lab these days. Um, those labs tend to be very, very big. They tend to be sort of almost industrial scale operations that there may not be as much room for physician scientists who have a small lab, who tinker a bit in the lab, right. um, you know, but do other things. And, you know, my understanding is that places like the Farber at Sloan Kettering, uh, you're not publishing in science this year, you're going to lose your lab space. <laughs> you know, there's a premium on real estate. You don't yeah. have three R01s, you're going to lose your lab space. You only have one R01. Do you feel as if the pressure to... You know, to be a lab person, do you have to be all in? Can can you still be a tinkerer in the lab? I think at smaller institutions um, or at institutions that um, uh, don't have the size of the lab effort and the space pressures mm -hmm. yeah. that are present in Boston, perhaps you can continue to do both. But it just is not feasible in Boston. If you're going to be a laboratory investigator, you have to be all in. All in, yeah. And, uh, and you know... People do still 
attend on service, you know, a few weeks out of the year. But the, the successful lab investigators, they, they don't have continuity clinics. They're not seeing patients on a regular basis. You know, they're not on leukemia call and things like that. Yeah. So um, that is uh, very much you have to identify, I think, as one or another species at a place like Dana-Farber. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, I think the, the sort of positive part is that anything that you get interested in, whether you're a clinician or a lab investigator, in a place that's as big as the community is in Boston, there's somebody else who you can collaborate with, somebody who's usually a very high-level investigator who um, you can learn from and work with and can, can help move projects forward. So that's a, that's a real plus about being in that environment. Yeah. You know, um, Amitabh Chandra, who's a professor at Harvard Medical School in uh, economics and uh, and public policy, you know, he always jokes that, um, you know, that there's some doctors out there who are increasingly hobbyists. You know, they do their little half-day clinic, and then poof, they disappear. They don't come back to clinic for two weeks. And and I think, you know, he he's, he's, he's hitting on something that there's some truth to, that there may be a group of people out there who are hobbyists. And I guess what I was thinking about is that I, I think people who – run these very, very small, small practices, um, probably feel as if they want to keep one hand, you know, in that clinic. And and they don't want to let that go because, uh, you know, when you go through the training that we did to become a doctor, being a doctor is not a job. It's part of my personality. It's intertwined with who I've become. I can't take it away any more than I would amputate my right hand. Right. Right. It's part of my identity. Um, So I think that's part of what drives them to do this. But then I also think the more I, I, I think about that is, they're missing out on they're missing out on that clinical moment that really kind of sustains you as a physician by that i mean it's only those nights you take calls sometimes by yourself and you're covering leukemia service for and you're getting calls from someplace 3 hours away or it's only those moments where you're admitting somebody late in the day um, that really come to shape the way you think of medicine those half day clinics are very controlled environments there there's some things unpredictable that can happen but it's it's taking call and taking service and doing more of that, that where you experience not all of the time, but sometimes moments that really challenge you as a clinician, um, moments that you will think about uh, weeks later, months later, and and moments that change your your clinical thinking, which I think is just a different maybe part of the brain. I don't know. Well, well said. Uh, you know, I think patients need you when they need you, yeah. and you can't box patients needs into a half day of clinic every week or every other week you know if somebody gets especially in the hematologic malignancies if they get a fever at midnight on christmas eve they need to you know they need somebody to be there for them um you know it doesn't necessarily have to be you as their primary hematologist oncologist but um, you really have to be available, I think, in order to be both good at clinical medicine and yeah. also have the depth of connection uh, with the patient. Uh, I often see as individuals move from academia to industry that they try to keep a clinic yeah. half day a week, yeah. one day a week. And I totally understand the motivation behind that. I mean, we we go through all this training to be doctors. We we take a lot of pride, many of us, in our clinical skills. And then to suddenly give that all up, um, even if 
you know, you're doing something new that you really want to do, that's very difficult in terms of our identities yeah. to give that up entirely. That being said, it rarely works. It rarely, and yeah. almost everybody who I've seen do that, within a year or two years, they've given that up. There are a few special circumstances, exceptions, certain types of right. practices that right. lend themselves to that. But most just don't, you know, because the patient gets a bowel obstruction on a Tuesday yeah. and, you know, you're meeting with the FDA that day, then you know, your colleagues only put up with that for so long. Um, and, and also the patient starts to feel a, a disconnect, I think. Um, so, I, yeah, I, it, it's just hard to do that. It really is. Of all the things we reward in, in the Academic Medical Center, we reward your publications, your grants, your um, perhaps even to some degree, even social media gets rewarded a bit more than the hard and tough job of being a very good doctor for the people who have put their trust in you. That's mm -hmm. the thing that one even if you know somebody very well as a professional colleague, you often don't get that sense. I mean, that's something that's hidden from your view. You're not, I'm not rounding with my colleagues. I'm not in their clinic all the time. So I don't get to see how they are. Uh, the one slice of window I get into their thinking is in conferences where people are fellows often presenting a, a difficult case, a challenging situation, an undifferentiated uh, workup. Um, and in those situations, sometimes you, you just get the sense that, oh, this colleague is... Uh, quite bright. Uh, that's a good way of thinking about right. things. And as we know in like oncology, it isn't always knowing the answer that is the challenge. It's knowing how hard to push for the answer, when to push, when to watch, when not to treat. These are just as important as was when to pull the trigger on treating, on ordering a diagnostic test, as knowing when not to do it and when to let time pass. Right. I, I think that's true. I think within institutions, we often recognize people who are um, very good clinicians, people who are good good doctors. Mm -hmm. you know, inside the institution. In, inside mm -hmm. the institution. And they may not be people who have the national reputation or, right. or are known outside the institution. And yet within they have that respect and people go to them when, when they, they have um, questions and concerns. When I was a junior attending physician in my first few years on staff, uh, my office was right next to a hematologist who was very influential for me um, named Bob Filicky. And, you know, Bob saw a lot of patients, not well known outside of Mayo Clinic, outside of Olmstead County. He did do some research over the years, but mm -hmm. it was mostly, you know, uh, summaries of, of case series and things. Um, and yet uh, not a week went by when I wasn't in his office asking about some difficult case, you know, hemolytic anemia where the patient had gone through steroids and rituximab and splenectomy mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. what do we do what next? Do next? And What's left? Yeah. All, all of these difficult questions. And I think, you know, he was tremendously helpful for me mm -hmm. and also for many of my colleagues mm -hmm. who, who could just get his thoughtful advice on how to approach uh, cases. And right. People like that are not often rewarded within academic institutions. Right. Mayo, because of its focus on clinical care, mm -hmm. valued a person right. like, like, that, like yeah. Bob Filicky. But in other institutions, people like that are not always valued. And that's really a shame because I, I think they are incredibly helpful, not only to other faculty members, but then downstream to patients yeah. who they indirectly influence. Indirectly influence.
I had many things that I kind of pulled out from from articles of yours I've written over the years. I want to jump in on one. Uh, you wrote an article in 2008 in the JCO uh, called "Don't Mention It." Um, I, I, I hope I don't know if it'll ring your bell right off the bat, but mm-hmm. uh, this was about. Um, and I think you know, listeners should take a look at this article. This is a nice, um, a nice article you wrote about an experience you had um, with a good friend of yours uh, who. Um, you know, uh, I think went into finance and, and made a fair bit of money and was able to purchase a, a really nice sailboat mm-hmm. um, that you were sailing, it sounds like, in the Boston Harbor or something like that. And it talks about, um, or where was it, off the coast of Maine or something? It was it was down uh, uh, off the coast of, um, of Rhode Island. Oh, off the coast of Rhode Island. And you're sailing with your friend, um, whom you've known for many years, um, and you're talking about how your friend looks as he's as he's handling the sailboat, which can be a physically grueling activity, and he looks as strong um, and fit as you've always remembered him. And um, you two are spending a few days together. And what looms in the background of this of this meeting is that another f- mutual friend of yours had had mentioned to you that this person you're with on the sailboat um, that he is he's dying of an incurable malignancy. And and your article. It's called Don't Mention It because even though you yourself are a hemonc doctor, even though this is the stock and trade of what you do, uh, over the course of that weekend, you never mention it and he never brings it up. And you talk about all those other things in life uh, except, except this one thing, which is the thing that, you know, I think he would want to talk to you about because who better than to get perspective from than someone who, who knows, knows this, this process, this disease. When I was reading your article, which I thought was really wonderful, what I thought of was two things. One, I think he's trying to tell you that let let my disease not define the relationship between the two of us, um, that we are friends, and, and being friends is something uh, we will always be, no matter what comes from this moment. The second thing it reminded me of was how often as a doctor, even an oncologist for someone, um, we have those don't mention it visits. We have those visits with someone where we sit with them and we talk about something other than their cancer. And those visits are often as important as the visits where we do go through the next steps of their treatment in terms of getting to know somebody, getting to build rapport with that somebody. I don't know, what did you think, I don't know, what do you think about this experience? You wrote about it so movingly, but. You know, all of us are more certainly than our diseases and our health problems. And I think, Getting to the point of sort of friends and family, uh, you know, often people will ask us for advice uh, with whom we have a very tangential connection and others uh, to whom we're very close when they develop a problem, a problem that may even be in our area, they, they don't want to discuss it or they don't want our advice. Mm -hmm. And, And I, I don't think it's our place as physicians to volunteer that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, it's always, I'm sure, welcome to offer help. But um, a lot of people, that's not what they want. They want the relationship to continue in some way as if nothing had changed mm-hmm. by a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is true to some extent with our own patients. It can be as well. Um, I always enjoy talking with my patients um, about things outside of mm-hmm. Me too. their scans or Me their too. blood test results um, because it 
it's very humanizing, number one. It's mm -hmm. something that the patient is the expert in and not you, and it, it helps level the playing field in mm -hmm. the room. Mm -hmm. um, I also learn a tremendous amount from mm -hmm. patients, you know, everything from, you know, when's the best time to cut a Christmas tree right. to, uh, you know, what, it, what it's like to... Uh, emigrate from Albania right, to, you know, right, it's, yeah. it's just uh, I take amazing what you it, can, yeah. can learn. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really a important part of what we do as clinicians is to make those kind of connections. It's very rewarding. I think, I think it's the, one of the things I take the greatest pleasure from, which is um, so often, and uh, it has always been true, but uh, you know, I think in the Pacific Northwest, uh, it happens in a different way, which is I meet so many people who have occupations uh, that I've only kind of just dreamt of. Um, uh, people who've worked in the forestry business, who've done really true log cutting, people who um, work out in Alaska, who um, do welding on the hulls of ships, or you know some of these sort of um, occupations that are so off the beaten path you, w you wouldn't even think twice about, um, and, and a whole bunch of other things. And, and I really get such pleasure in learning about, you know, what was it like to do that for for decades what was Ooh. it like in the 60s and 70s to Ooh. do that or what was it like you know more recently and i don't know and, and that's just one thing and what they do and who know, and many other things that i learned from from talking to people uh, that's one of the secret pleasures of being a doctor i think i often summarize these things in one sentence in the medical record yeah. uh, you know we discussed her time in Dresden during the firebombing mm. in the Second World War, you know, mm -hmm. and it's a single sentence in the medical record, but but I know that yeah. we talked about that for 20 minutes, yeah. and it was a very, you know, intense conversation, and uh, it's not always like that, of course. Right. Uh, you know, some people don't want to open right. up about things, right. or, you know, they, they may find it difficult to, to have those sorts of conversations, and that's totally... Totally fine, but it's it is meaningful when it happens, and and I think makes um, what we do really a, a, a very special profession. You've written a number of these um, pieces over the years, and I, I took pleasure in, in reading through them. Another one that caught my eye that I, I feel compelled to ask you about, um, but you know if you don't feel like we're talking about it, that's okay too. Um, but this one that caught my eye was just something you wrote last year in 2018, entitled "The Raven." Oh, which right. I know, you'll yeah. know. And um, I guess, and correct me if I summarize anything incorrectly, but, um, you know, this is, a, this is something that, uh, as you put yourself, uh, it, it has taken me 13 years to muster up the courage. <laughs> I think, you know, that's how you kind of characterize it. Yeah. Um, this was something you experienced in your life um, many years ago, which was when you found um, a, a suspicious lesion on your skin and uh, you underwent a biopsy, and, of course, the biopsy came back that this was a melanoma. And during this time period, you underwent um, imaging uh, out of fear that, God forbid, this melanoma has spread. And I think listeners may not all know, but they might know, that metastatic melanoma probably in those years um, was a very grave prognosis. It still remains quite a grave prognosis, though we're lucky that we've had a number of drug approvals that have improved overall survival um, for the condition including immunotherapy. But back in these days, you know, you were really kind of relegated to uh, decarbazine, an old drug that, you know, people don't like, uh, IL-2, which was really kind of a, a lottery-like chance. Right. Um, it was a very, it would be a very sort of scary and sobering and life-altering prognosis. You were, of course, a young man at the time. And so here you were kind of grappling with this uncertainty around what is the diagnosis? You're awaiting a biopsy of this bone lesion. What is this? Um, and in your yard, you swear... Uh, a dark bird flutters down, and the bird is has a thick, shaggy mane, 
and it is as dark as the melanoma itself, and it is a raven. And I think what I really um, struck me about your essay, where you talk about what is the symbolism of a raven, of course, if I saw that, I would, uh, my immediately thought would be that this is a bad omen. Uh, and I think that's your thought immediately. Right. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, you Right, know? yeah, the raven. <laughs> the Queen. lost Lenore. Yeah, the lost Lenore. Quote the raven, nevermore. Yeah, and, uh, you know, your initial thought was this is a bad omen. Uh, but then you read more, and in other sort of canonical stories, ravens can be um, uh, a source of, re- of respite, of providing support in, t- in dark times. And, and then, um, you know, thankfully the biopsy comes back, and of course it is a, is a benign lesion. It, it was not related to the melanoma. Uh, your, your melanoma uh, was ki- successfully excised. Um, uh, the, and, and when you got that information, the raven flutters away. Uh, and then you say the reason it took you 13 years to talk about this incident, um, this ex- this experience you had, this really sort of profound experience, um, was because now at long last, you know, you your survival curve uh, is as if you had never had it. Right. Um, and then you said this line in it, which is uh, how you end, where you say, um, you know, as Hamlet reminds Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So I guess when I read when I read this essay by you. Um, I feel like uh, what you're talking about is something that, you know, a lot of us have had sort of experiences that seem to defy, um, and, and I speak about those of us who are scientists. I think, you know, we, we, you know, you and I are both at our core, we're scientists, we're physicians. We deal in the realm of the rational, of what makes sense, of what has been documented and studied. And yet, even us, even amongst us, we've had experiences in our life that push on that rationality that seem to defy um, probability that seem more than chance is that what you're getting at and 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 how do we kind of reconcile those two halves of ourselves it is um, so j- just to very briefly give the the sort of sequence uh, of uh, events um, and I, I've talked about this at a bit more length in the outspoken oncology podcast that Trotty Nobbin does. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't listen to that episode. I'm sorry. Yeah. That, that's, uh, but I had gone, I had had a, uh, a kidney stone and I had gone in for a CT scan. It's the only one I've ever had. Um, and they did the CT scan and the kidney stone passed thankfully, but there was a lytic lesion on my iliac crest and the radiologist report said, in the right context, this could represent metastatic malignancy. I see. And so I talked with my primary care doctor, and he spoke with the radiologist, and they said, well, this is kind of a odd place for a metastasis. Right. I was otherwise feeling well. Um, and so I uh, didn't think anything of it. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I had gone in for a routine check with the dermatologist, and um, something that I did every year because I had had a few dysplastic nevi removed over the years. I was a very pale kid, you know, Mm -hmm. hair almost white, Mm -hmm. uh, got Mm -hmm. sunburns because we didn't think about it uh, Mm -hmm. in the 1970s. So, um, you know, sort of the poster child for for melanoma. uh, um, And she said, well, you know, you've got this lesion on your forearm that, that looks a little funny and I'll take it off. And as long as I'm doing that, I might as well take this one off your back as well. And so she took the lesion off the forearm. And uh, back then you could pretty easily check your own medical records. So I checked the pathology system. And the one in the arm was signed out the next day like benign nevus. And Mm -hmm. the one in the back wasn't signed out at all. And the pathology system was just blank. And so I didn't think anything of it. And um, 
I thought it must have been so benign they didn't even bother to report it or right. something, or right. maybe no the tissue was goodness. fragmented. Right, right. Yeah. bad bad assumption uh, yeah. to make. Uh, and I um, just went about my business, and then uh, the following week, my wife had taken our then very small daughters to her family farm in Michigan. Uh, and I get this call from the dermatologist and she says, you know, usually I give news like this in the office, but you're an oncologist. And if I say I need to come talk to you about that skin biopsy, you're going to panic. You, yeah. you, you know what, what's going on. And yeah. so she said, it's a melanoma. The margins are positive from the little punch biopsy I did. Um, you know, we need to get you in for a wide local excision with a sentinel node biopsy. And I said, well, I did have this CT scan and, and, you know, yeah. and there was like silence on the other end. And, and I, uh, I was just thinking, oh, I'm so screwed here. You know, this is not how I wanted things to end. I was just getting my lab started. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, the kids were very small then. And, and, uh, it was really, um, a weekend of, I would say grieving for a future that I then imagined was not going to happen, um, that I had imagined for myself. It was also a time where I was alone, which was not healthy. And there were, I had plenty of friends I could have called, but I didn't want to talk to anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was when the Raven showed up and he's outside the, you know, he or she, I don't know how to gender yeah. type of raven, but the raven showed up outside the kitchen window and I, th I thought, oh, good grief, you know, let's add insult to injury here and, you know, here's my, my dark omen. And, um, you know, I, I, was, I was really very upset. And then I thought, well, I had a watch on. I thought maybe it just, like, sees my watch. So I went into a, a different room and the raven followed and I took the watch off and, and uh, the raven continued to follow. And it was there the whole weekend because, um, of course, this was on a Friday when this happened. Uh, and so I couldn't have a biopsy of the lytic lesion mm -hmm. until the following week. Um, and so uh, I just it was sort of a very dark time, at least that first day. And then I was in the kitchen and my daughter had... Um, a little paper she had colored from Sunday school and it was the a picture of Elijah in the desert with uh, these birds in the sky and it was a passage about Elijah being fed by ravens when he was out in this desert mm -hmm. um, and had no source of food and he was waiting on a, a message from God a prophecy uh, something to prophesy about uh, and then it immediately sort of changed the whole dynamic of it. I thought, well, you know, maybe this raven is just like a temporary mm -hmm. companion during mm -hmm. my, you know, my dark you. time of the, the soul. And so Monday came uh, and I got the biopsy. It was a benign fibrous dysplasia. I had the wide local excision and, you know, everything worked out well. And here I am now 14 years later still thankfully alive and disease free although i see derm still every six months yes, I, yeah. <laughs> um but i i almost didn't believe that i had seen this raven i thought maybe i you know i was so dreamt upset it. i dreamt it or something until about two weeks later i was bringing the garbage out to the curb um and this neighbor comes over and he's like ah, did you see that big bird at your place a couple weekends ago you know that's a raven they don't usually come up here in minnesota because uh -huh. minnesota is right at the edge of the raven's yeah, natural yeah, range and that yeah. was when i realized it it really happened so 
Um, as far as the supernatural element, I think there's a lot of things in life that um, are difficult to explain and to understand. Um, certainly, you know, I was trained as an undergraduate in physics and astronomy and, you know, very much think of the world in a scientific and orderly way. Um, on the other hand, I was also raised in a, you know, in a Dutch reformed religious community and continue to maintain, uh, you know, those values and at least the possibility that there is much beyond what we can see. Um, and I don't have any further answers beyond that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 there are things that I'd, I'd like to believe, but, um, you know, ultimately uh, there's only so much that we can prove whether one is a, a Richard Dawkins and a mm -hmm. militant atheist or, you know, somebody who's uh, a thoughtful, um, you know, religious uh, grounded philosopher. Um, ultimately, uh, you can't argue all the way back to yeah. basic principles. principles. It's, yeah. you, it's um, there's just many things that we don't know and don't understand. And so uh, I'm open to the idea that that raven was somehow a companion mm -hmm. for me in that dark time. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things you talked about um, is that 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 soul searching you did grieving for a future uh, that you thought um, was certain and and realizing it it's incredibly uncertain for this weekend. That's, you know, that's a feeling that I think we unfortunately as oncologists sometimes we give that to somebody else. You know, you go and you tell somebody some news and you can often see the instant where their mind goes there. What does this mean for for where I am? And and you often can kind of even lose them in the room in that moment. And you know, it takes a bit of discipline to get to the point where you can just sit there and wait, however long it may take, often quite a long time, to get them back with you um, to see if there's anything you can provide. And often, I mean, it's a tough feeling that we face. I think as doctors, you feel I think quite powerless in those moments too you want to take the worry off the person's shoulders and take this onto your shoulders, which I think is what we try to do as much as possible, I think, as, as doctors. But you know that to some degree there are some of these worries that you just can't take on your shoulders and that people have to process it in their own way. Right. Um, I wonder if you having had that experience, being on the other side of things, processing it for yourself, if going forward when you see patients, has it changed at all the way in which you deliver bad news, the way in which you kind of... I don't know, sit there waiting for what you can do about it. I mean, you know, I, I was once, I, I have had the pleasure, I think, in training to shadow, like, I think many really good clinicians. And um, so I had the, the privilege, I think, of being in the room and watching somebody else do this. And um, there have been people who I think do a really good job. And I think one of the things that they do is they do as much as possible to kind of take the time it takes to, to work through some of these feelings. Um, I don't know. How has it changed your practice at all? You know, I don't think it's changed yeah. my practice in the sense that I've somehow become more empathic or something. Because I'd like to think that I was already that way. Already that way. Mm -hmm. But but it has it it has changed my practice in one respect, and that is that when I get a test result on a patient, I try to communicate that as quickly as possible I see. even if it's in the evening when I get it or you know because um, if it's an important test result you know because you realize the patient 
is waiting on that, and their world is effectively paused yes. until they get that scan result back or biopsy result back. So it has definitely heightened my uh, desire to communicate results quickly when I can and to schedule things quickly when, you know, when somebody comes up with a concern, a new lump, you know, um, so, so that has happened. I also think that I didn't realize how isolating illness can be and how lonely an experience it can be. Even when you have very good friends and you have a loving spouse and you have, you know, uh, parents and siblings and, you know, people who, mm-hmm. you know, are there for you and ha- you have a good relationship with. Um, at the end of the day, when you're facing a serious illness, you know, it's something you, you kind of have to go through yourself and process yourself. And I think uh, good clinicians can sense when people need space to mm-hmm. work through some of those things and when their presence is helpful. Um, and often the most important thing we do is just be there for people Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and not necessarily say things. Uh, And it sounds like some of the sort of master clinicians that you shadowed had a good sense of when when those times were. As I've sort of looked through some of the, the articles you've written over the years, I see that you've been sort of prescient in the way you've kind of put your finger on issues that I think were were really not yet as important as they would someday be. And one of those issues, I think, was 2006, where I see you've written a really nice article on ESAs, erythropoietin stimulating agents. And you were doing other, you know, not just one article, but you had done a lot of work in this space. And I think this is, you know, I, one of the quotes I, I pulled out of, of this article, broader article, which I thought was really well done, I think also appeared in the JCO, um, was, quote, ideally an adequately powered study in a carefully balanced group of cancer patients with overall survival as the primary endpoint would go a long way towards answering the important question of whether or not erythropoietin therapy improves survival, is harmful, or has no substantive effect on life expectancy. So that's your quote. And I guess to give listeners a little bit of the backdrop, the story of the ESAs is really a remarkable story, I think, in cancer medicine, and even maybe even in dialysis medicine, which we don't have to get into. Um, this was, without a doubt, erythropoietin is a very important molecule, and when it could be, um, you know, synthetically produced and, and injected, uh, the potential for therapeutic uh, effect uh, was thought to be quite large. There are a number of conditions where we struggle with anemia and perhaps some of the sequela of anemia, and those include conditions where you administer cytotoxic drugs on fixed schedules, which can really drop someone's counts and lead them to have fatigue and, and feeling weak and tired. And even in cases like re- renal failure, chronic renal failure, where the body uh, becomes sort of incapable through disease states to make adequate, I think, uh, red blood cell production and, and deliver adequate oxygen to, to tissues. And perhaps there also erythropoietin may have a role. And I guess in the early 2000s, EPO, a very costly drug, um, marketed primarily by Amgen in those days, I think they were the first to have um, uh, recombinant erythropoietin, uh, they uh, really kind of captured large market share by making EPO uh, be paired with a number of chemotherapy drug cocktails um, and used, you know, arguably to be able to have less frequent dose interruptions or dose delays. 
um, I think it was Charlie Bennett did in a meta-analysis in JAMA where he pulled a bunch of these small randomized trials of EPO which were not designed or suited or powered individually to make an assessment of all-cause mortality, but collectively uh, really did point in the direction that there is a concerning safety signal here, and we may be inadvertently, um, perhaps with best intentions and perhaps uh, fueled by uh, financial perverse incentives, we may inadvertently be harming cancer patients. And so you started thinking about EPO in these years. Uh, what was what was it like to be a part of this EPO discussion back in, in this time frame? You know, I sort of backed into the EPO world and the, and the ESA world. Um, I had maintained a, a strong interest in classical hematology. Mm. And uh, when I was a fellow uh, at Mayo, I had worked with Charles Leprinzi, uh, who was the medical oncology chair and who had a program um, which at that time was called cancer control, which mm -hmm. focused a lot on symptom control. Um, and uh, he needed somebody to uh, do clinical trials of growth factors and such through the NCCTG, through a parallel network called the Mayo Clinic uh, Cancer Research Consortium. Um, and so that's how I got involved. And that was a very productive relationship. And you know, I, I learned a lot about designing phase three trials. I brought one of those trials to the Vail workshop mm, uh, when I was a fellow. The legendary Vail um, workshop. <laughs> and they, they said, uh, initially they were quite hesitant. They said, well, you know, fellows usually don't get involved with phase three of trials. Course. They and, still say that to this day, I yeah, think. Yeah, and I said, but this is a special circumstance. So right. they, they, let it, they let it fly, and that was a, a very rewarding week. But anyway... Uh, Suddenly, uh, you know, I was doing these studies looking at dose and schedule of ESAs mm -hmm, in different mm -hmm. settings. And suddenly, um, all of these different studies started appearing where Amgen and J&J, yeah. uh, who marketed uh, the other ESA yeah. back in those days, had, had really made a miscalculation where they, um, they tried by driving the hemoglobin higher to get better efficacy in terms of radiotherapy's effects, in terms of chemotherapy's effects, yeah. by increasing tumor oxygenation, mm -hmm. potentially making cytotoxic therapy more effective. And right. it, was, it was a reasonable hypothesis, but it, it, uh, unfortunately it, it really blew up on them. Right. Um, and there were multiple studies in various solid tumors and in lymphoma that showed uh, poor outcomes, either more tumor growth or poor survival, the results of which I think are still incompletely understood. Right. Um, there was a lot of question, you know, do tumor cells express EPO receptors? Is it something about driving the hemoglobin too high that's increasing risk of thrombosis or other adverse effects? Probably uh, quite complicated uh, at the end of the day. In any case, um, uh, I was part of that sort of community of investigators working on ESAs at this very volatile time when Medicare was proposing, CMS was proposing to stop covering ESAs mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of different settings where, you know, um, clinicians who had been making a lot of money in their practices yeah. on these growth factors yeah. were thinking about, you know, is this something that, you know, we're, we're going to get in trouble for? Is right. this something that we, you know, are going to continue to, to practice like we have been, you know, there, 
that was one of the dark secrets of oncology at the time is that practices would buy these drugs wholesale and yeah. then build them to the patients at retail and make money yeah. off of them. There were mm -hmm. practices that were making a lot of money um, uh, just on growth factors alone. So it, it was an exciting time to be to be part of all of that, and and things sort of settled out into a, a I think a stalemate a stalemate now yeah, where. Yeah. These drugs do reduce transfusion needs. There's no consistent effect on quality of life. And there is, at least in the solid tumors, a safety signal that we have to be really cautious yeah, about. Yeah. So that you shouldn't be using it in somebody who you're treating for curative intent, right. uh, should be very careful in other settings. Doesn't apply to like myelodysplasia where right. we've never had a safety, safety signal, signal like right. that. We so. still use it, of course, myelodysplasia. The most commonly used class of drugs, even though it doesn't have a label in the US. Oh. For MDS. For MDS. Oh, yeah. even ahead of the HMAs, huh? Okay, that's good. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're, I, 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 the reason I quoted that sentence, because that sentence hits a nail on the head. And to me, I feel like the lesson that gets forgotten, of course, in medicine, and of course, I'm probably just going to say the same thing I always say, which is that, you know, what the story shows me is that uh, bioplausibility, the best intentions, the best people being behind something, early promising um, signals, uh, surrogate endpoints. Uh, these are all great. It's good to have. Uh, but that's not the same thing as the validation studies you that's need. Right. Yeah. And and I guess what I'm struck by the fascination is like that to me is is like I if when I when I look reflect on medical history, um, you know, all the sorts of stories that often get omitted from the textbooks because they're these back steps, you know, they're not the linear progress that gets captured in the Harrisons or DeVita. Um, uh, history is written by the victors, and, and these uh, and these things are kind of written out of the history books. But to me, like the, the the thing that always I struggle with is, I see over and over in modern oncology, modern medicine, people equally smart, equally well intentioned, perhaps similar kind of perverse financial incentives around it, like the ESA story. Except the only difference is there are very few people saying, hey, this is a lot like the ESA story. Uh, we want to wait for those validation studies, and there's a lot of enthusiasm to hop on board. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, a very good example of a medical reversal, yes. certainly, in terms of... i you later for using that term. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that was really eye-opening to me, uh, because this was the first time I had interacted with companies on any, yeah. um, any sort of significant basis, was just how different cultures of companies could be. Uh, the way that Amgen approached this and the way that J&J &J approached it were, were quite different. How and, so? Um, you know, I think J&J, and I can't speak to what things are like now, but they were um, very much a conservative company. You mm -hmm. know, they, uh, back in the 1980s when this, this the Tylenol poisoning thing had happened in, in the Chicago area, um, the way that they handled that um, became like a textbook example of um, how one should address a disaster when right. it comes to uh, tampering of a drug in that case. Uh, but really for uh, corporate damage control beyond that. Um, you know, Amgen were very much um, uh, a, a younger company. Um, and for them, ESAs was and growth factors was their be-all and end-all. Yeah. They didn't have anything else. J&J, yeah. &J, it was a small part of their portfolio. They had everything from, you know, Band-Aids to, you know, chemotherapy drugs. And, um, and so for them, I think the stakes were a little bit lower. Yeah. So it was interesting to see the, how these two different cultures 
um, uh, you know, approached a, 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 the same problem that they were both facing. And they, there was, they teamed up certainly yeah, to, yeah. to come up with a way forward, but it was, it was eye-opening to me. And since then, um, around clinical trials and I've worked with a lot of different companies and companies have cultures just like academic institutions right. do. And, and uh, sometimes those can be very collaborative cultures and cultures that uh, as investigators, we, um, we find it easier to work with. Um, and others are, you know, other companies are, are very dysfunctional yeah, or at least yeah. they present themselves to investigators in that way. Yeah. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you were, we were talking earlier about generalizing, but I mean, I think you're right that there is an individual culture to these institutions. If I were to try to draw some general arc, which is, of course, there's some exceptions to this, it is that large companies with broad and diverse portfolios and very broad revenue streams uh, tend to have um, uh, less investment in any one product and thus negative data about any one product, criticism about any one product. They're willing to weather. They're willing to work with regulators on, on that kind of issue, and they're happy to say, okay, we're going to shut her down this whole division, this whole drug product, this whole class. Uh, it's the companies that are those one-hit companies, the bi early fledgling biotechs, right. these startups looking to just merely perhaps not even bring a drug to market but just to be acquired. Um, they often have rabid fervor driving that company, and you say right. anything bad about that drug product, you're getting yourself, uh, you know, you're going to be a marked person. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's an existential threat. Yeah, it's them. an existential yes. threat. It's a threat to their existence. It's a, you know, perhaps why the rabbit runs faster than the fox sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, you wrote a really lovely article in 2015 about your work uh, uh, as a key opinion leader. Oh and I boy. guess whether or not you like it or not, I think <laughs> it's fair to say that people would call you a key opinion leader. You're the kind of person that people would want uh, on their side when it comes to the MDS and, and the myeloid uh, neoplasms. And, and you write this about key opinion leaders. And I, I should just give a little background. Uh, in your early career, um, Perhaps born out of financial necessity, you participated in some uh, of these sort of um, uh, advisory panels. You do that a lot less, perhaps not at all today. Um, you write this. Over the years, I've participated in many other advisory committee meetings, and although many have been models of healthy and productive academic industry collaboration, not all have been as enjoyable as the as that first one. In some cases, the panel seemed less a forum for exchange of opinion and instead just another way for a company to disseminate a marketing message, a chance to raise awareness of a drug's profile or quell emerging fears on drug safety. Too often, a company's representatives have already decided on the trial design and drug development plan, and they seem to simply be going through the motions of soliciting external advice, unwilling to heed sensible recommendations of clinical advisors, even when a draft trial design is impractical or proposed development program unwise. I really like this last sentence. Were it not for patients put at risk and wasted time, I might indulge in a bit of schadenfreude <laughs> when, when ill-considered trials from stubborn sponsors predictably fail. I guess it, what, I, what I really get out of this is, I mean, two things. We'll talk about the first part, which is, um, you know, I, I think it is, it's not just the money that key opinion leaders get. It's the flattery to have anyone ask you of your opinion. Um, you know, it's it's a flattering thing when you go to these um, meetings and people who work in the industry say, hey, you're a smart person. You're a key opinion leader. You're driving what other people think. What, what can you tell me? 
And, and sometimes they're doing that not because they actually want the feedback. They want you to feel like you're giving them feedback. You feel good about it. And meantime, they get to slip you some messages like, this is a good drug. Don't worry about those thromboses, you know. Eh, just give it at a lower dose. It's not FDA, it's not on the label, but I'm sure there'll be less thrombosis at that lower dose, you know. Um, w- yeah, what has your, been your, your experience with this key opinion leader? Well, I, I very much dislike that term. And it's parallel term, thought leader. Thought leader, know? yeah. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd much rather be... Um, considered a leader for sort of research accomplishments or mm-hmm. <laughs> or productivity rather than just for for thinking about things i mean it's a it's like mycroft holmes the the uh brother uh, the brother of sherlock who yeah. just sat in the diogenes club and <laughs> never uh, lifted his ample backside to go out and do some actual detective work and just preferred to uh, rest rum- on ruminate and pontificate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, now it, it it is a funny term, but at, at the end of the day, I think um, the positive thing that can come out of interactions between academics and industry who are considering a clinical trial is for the industry sponsors to really then understand what is the current landscape of treatments, where the unmet needs are, and what is the patient group who's most likely to benefit from their therapy, and how a study could practically be designed mm-hmm. to, to get at those, those questions. And I have over the years uh, participated in um, advisory boards consulting regarding clinical trials where there was a very positive interaction where uh, the company was really keen to understand, you know, where does our drug fit in CMML or myelodysplasia or acute leukemia or myeloproliferative disease, you know, one of these disease groups uh, that patients have that, uh, that I see. Um, and where you can really, as somebody who's around that table, help steer the development of a, a trial away from something that probably wouldn't work or wouldn't be tested in the group of patients where it's most likely to be helpful. Um, and so that, I think, is... Um, I, th- I, I encourage young people to get involved in those kind of... Uh, advisory boards because you you learn a lot from the people around the table sure the you know it's nice to receive an honorarium um but uh the the main thing is that you're able to influence a study design in a favorable way because the companies they don't know most of the time they haven't worked in this space they don't have somebody on staff Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. knows about leukemia or knows about whatever your diseases of of interest and so you know that that can be i think a, a healthy collaboration unfortunately there are also plenty of advisory boards that are really just uh you know, marketing messages or some safety issue has come up and the company wants you to advise them about how to basically quell concerns about mm-hmm, this safety mm-hmm, issue. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, they're subtly, you know, telling you that this isn't really an issue because right. of ABC. So, you know, those I, you know, run like the wind from yeah. uh, because that's not a valuable use of, of time. Um, but it, you're, I think you're you're right in that it is somewhat flattering, especially when you're early in your career, mm-hmm. to say oh, somebody values my opinion and and they value it so much that they're actually willing to pay for it. Right. You know, yeah. that's kind of a heady thing when you're a yeah. second year faculty member. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and uh, 
sometimes that that is of great value, and other times it's just baloney. <laughs> you know, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I guess one thing I think I wonder if you if you think about is that um, there are many many people in oncology who are brilliant, and there are a bunch of people in oncology who are smart, and there are a bunch of people in oncology who uh, say things that are said frequently, and I don't, and I wonder about how brilliant and smart they may actually be. And one of the litmus tests I always do is, I always tell people, you wanna know how somebody really thinks, you pull all their sort of single author papers, or maybe one or two at most, but you get the kind of things that, um, and, and, and typically you don't want perhaps articles that look like, like if they're the second author and the first author's a fellow, like it's probably written by the fellow kind of thing. You try to pull the articles you think that this person probably actually had to sit down and do some writing uh, for. And then you read through those articles and then that's a sort of a brief window into like, how does this person actually think? And there are a number of people who you do that exercise and you walk away with, that's very clever. Oh boy. You know, even I'll be honest with you, people whom I disagree with on a number of issues, when I pull, when I do this exercise and look through their, their body of work, I walk away thinking I disagree with that person, but I, I'm going to take them very seriously. If I ever were to discuss this issue with them, I know they're a serious thinker. Um, okay. So I, I'm talking about the good side, but the bad side of course, is I do the same exercise for some other people. And I walk away with the conclusion of Boy, how is this person the thought, quote unquote, thought leader? How have, how have they reached the anointed state? And surely their name may be first on, you know, an original article that appeared in the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine. But the more I kind of probe beneath the veneer, I um, feel as if it may be an illusion. And recently I was having lunch with um, a colleague who's in cardiology, and this colleague uh, is in town for some conference. And he, had the pleasure of sort of working with some really big names in cardiology, luminaries in cardiology. And I went through those people and we were saying, you know, what's that person really like? And he said, about one person, he said, he's a hollow suit. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he looks like he's really knowledgeable, but when you probe even a bit, it is, there is nothing behind the surface. It is all politicking and posturing and getting other people to kind of build a facade. Uh, but there is nothing on the inside. And, and then this person who is not an academic, so I think kind of was driven out by, by these kinds of feelings, um, said that, you know, in your business, in academic medicine, it's 60% of people. I said, 60%, it's a little high. It's a little high. I'm not going to say 60%. But I think he's on to something that there is this, um, this phenomenon. What do you think? Do you think that the industry has anointed some people and has given them careers part and parcel? I think it's complicated. I think that... Um there are some people who may not be deep or original thinkers, uh, but who may have gifts in other areas, like they are very diplomatic, for instance, and so yeah. people are, are willing to collaborate with them. They're sort of considered an honest broker, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. Um, there are people who are good administrators, who maybe not somebody who can write uh, essay and JCO that really changes your point of view right. or opens your mm -hmm. eyes mm -hmm. because it's super insightful and in things. But there's somebody who, when it comes to getting a 500 patient clinical trial done and making sure that the safety issues are dealt with, you know, that's their gift and, and that's their strength. So, you know, I think there, there probably are uh, people who are um, hollow wine casks as well. Yes, yes. Uh, but, but I think, you know, just because somebody... Um, you know, isn't particularly original, uh, they may still have um, a, a lot to offer. Um, you know, that uh, that being said, I, 
I just read uh, about a week and a half ago this fantastic article by uh, Arthur Brooks um, in The Atlantic, uh, who is stepping down as the chair of the American Enterprise uh, Institute. Yes. Yeah. And uh, he's in his early 50s. Yes. And he talked about um, remaining relevant and remaining in touch with um, with what's going on in one's field and the, the point at which one as a, as a sort of aging academic um, transitions to being someone who has a lot of fluid intelligence and is working in a lot of different areas and is a dynamic uh, speaker, the stage w that you are clearly in no, now. Uh -huh. um, uh, and, and then eventually, especially as one gets past 50, yeah. Um, you have a lot of accumulated knowledge, a lot of crystallized knowledge, a lot of experience, but you may not have those original ideas or be able to uh, see patterns the way that a young, younger person yeah. uh, uh, is able to do. And there's, I'm sure there's something biologic to that. So, you know, Brooks' suggestion was that people, when they get to this stage, that they really focus more on on mentoring and on teaching and on, you know, connecting with others. Um and so I wonder sometimes when I see somebody um, like you were describing, if maybe once upon a time they were somebody who was original right. and such, but the field has sort of passed them by a little bit, and yet maybe they're still hanging on when they should be doing something different, something right, that right. has you know value as well, but isn't still being the first investigator on a on a Hodgkin disease trial. Right. Now, I mean, I think. And there's a number of sort of, of course, anecdotal examples of major sort of novel insights in physics from Einstein. But he was, of course, in his like late 20s when he had that. And and I do think there's a role. I mean, there's always this idea that those first few years when you just learn the facts and you still approach something with fresh eyes is often the time where you may have an insight or a thought that very few people have had. Right. I've, I've long run out of original ideas, David. I, I do think that... Um, I know we have, I have an essay that's eventually going to print if God if they ever decide to print you know these how these people are I have some essay called like making room this kind of philosophy that you know we do need to make room for sort of these new ideas uh, to trickle up um, from I think younger people and I think I don't know I, I once saw um, uh, I don't know somebody arguing about something on Twitter and. And uh, they said, like, you're going to feel different when, you know, you get to a certain age. You're going to be want to argue this idea. I tell you, as I tell you what, I was like, I promise you one thing. When I get to some age, you're not going to see me on Twitter. I'm going to be doing <laughs> I'm going to be enjoying my life and I won't be I won't be there talking about medicine still. But I, I think it is interesting that, um, well, we're also talking about this, this sort of the key opinion leader idea. And I think you're right. You're you're being very fair that there are other attributes um, this one type of thing that we reward so heavily in, I think, Western civilization, which is analytical thinking, it's not the only virtue in the world, but we reward that sort of disproportionately. And there may be other sort of skill sets people bring to the research enterprise. Um, I, but I do struggle with this idea that I think there's a, a unhealthy bit of careerism. Mm -hmm. Career over cause. What do I mean by that? Uh, and I, I don't think it's, it's, it's unique to even oncology or basic science. I think it's true in the policy world. Um, it's where we start to confuse cause the thing that motivated us initially to do what we're doing and career and we flip the two in our minds and um, i guess the ways in which i feel like this manifests is you know the cost of cancer drugs is a very important topic i care a great deal about it i don't know at some point i started to worry that maybe there's some players in the cost of cancer drug space who 
they care more about their voice being a part of the discussion than actually solving the problem. Right. Because I feel like we, you know, we've been talking about this for ten years, and there has been, uh, you know, very little concrete, tangible solutions. And many people are happy to tinker around the edges and not actually hit the, the I think, those main structural failures uh, that are going on. I think about it even um, when people feel like it's more important that I'm the author or PI of a say Hodgkin's lymphoma study, then we actually make substantive progress against Hodgkin's disease mm-hmm. for that fraction of people in whom it is still a death sentence, uh, you know, that we really ought to do better for. And I feel like, um, I don't know, I mean, I can understand that, that there's some, it's a natural tendency to slip into this thing that I've paid my dues, I've been in this field, I've been working so hard. Um, and you just come to see the next step forward as what's going to advance your career. And you forget, I think, the goal. And I guess I'll give you one example of where I think it really acts out in academics. Um, there are so many times, at least on social media and also in academic medicine, where people for whom I am deeply allied with, we're 97% the same. We have 3% disagreement. We're 97% the same. And we end up quibbling, 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 quibbling about those 3% differences. And that, to me, I think is the stupidest thing in the world <laughs> because we're 97% the same and there's only 2% of us because everyone else is on the other side of this issue or something. We need to band together and like all good political parties, uh, get everyone in a line and no more dissent and we need to go out as a unified front and for our 97% that we agree on. But in academics, I often see people tearing each other apart over minutia. Yeah. And you know, sometimes on the, uh, when I'm looking at something that I'm the, on the outside, I say, what the hell are they arguing about this little <laughs> thing for? They agree largely. Um, I don't know. This is the academic politics, I think. Do you feel like it's easy to, I mean, is it possible that we slip into this pattern where we think of our career more than the ver- the very thing that motivated us to take this up in the first place? Well, we are complicated creatures, I think, and uh, egos get in the way. And, and um, you know, I think sometimes there's a sense that, you know, I've done all this work, I've paid my dues, yeah. I now deserve some sort of a reward. Um uh, You know, when, when you're young, it sometimes feels like there's this cabal of, key opinion leaders that you, you know, you, you, you just can't figure out how to break into or, you know, and, and what can you do to get noticed and be sort of part of the club who's influencing the disease. And then uh, once you are, it becomes hard then to, to give that up. Um, You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, my observation over the years of academic disputes has been that sometimes the biggest disputes are over the smallest things. Uh, You know, there's that old quip about, you know, why are the fights in academia so big because the stakes are so small? Yeah. yeah. Um, And, you know, but small differences can, you know, how how similar is our DNA to the chimpanzee Uh, and to the the rolling group? Yeah. yeah. Uh, But but that little little difference (laughs) makes a, makes, Uh makes a, yeah. for a significant uh, uh, change. So, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, your observation is certainly spot on. Um, and people are motivated by different things. Um, everybody wants to feel relevant in some way. Yeah. They want to feel yeah. like they're doing something that is significant. Um, that relevance and significance means different things to different people. But when interesting when I've talked to people who are at ages where typically most people would retire, um, and I've asked them, you know, what keeps them going, yeah. and it's inevitably they say something like, you know, 
I either I I still feel like I'm relevant, like I have something to offer. Yeah. Uh, or I want to continue to contribute and feel uh, relevant. I, a few months ago, I went to New York and gave grand rounds in honor of um, Dick Silver's 90th birthday mm-hmm. at Wild Cornell and. You know, Dick, until very recently, was seeing patients. He's still doing teaching. He's still uh, writing. And uh, he said, you know, he'll never retire unless he has to for health reasons because he feels like he's still relevant when he comes to work and teaches younger people about myeloproliferative neoplasms and, you know, can give historical context to some of the challenges that they're they're facing. Uh, John Bennett uh you know, leader of the FAB group, um, still comes to many meetings, gets invited to, to speak at many centers. And, and John once told me, you know, that the moment I start to feel like I'm not relevant, I'm not wanted anymore, mm-hmm. then, you know, then I'll go to Florida and retire. But mm-hmm. as long as I still feel like I can make a contribution, I want to continue to, to do so. So I think, you know, especially as we get older, that, that that is a meaningful thing for people. You're a young man still, but how do you feel personally? <laughs> will you ever hang up the stethoscope or will you? I, you know, we began this interview by talking about um, literature and about diversity of interests. And I'm one of those people that can very easily imagine myself having done something else besides what I do. And I've loved what I've done. I, uh, but it's quite easy for me to imagine having taught college or having, you know, worked at um, the Southern Observatory, uh, you know, and, and just the, these different other pathways that you can imagine for, for yourself. So, you know, I'm in my 40s now. I wonder as I get into the next stage of career. Will I, will I want to keep doing this until physically I can't, like many people do? Or will I choose to do something different down the road um, that might be um, a new challenge, something else to struggle to be relevant in? We, uh, we shall yes, see. Yes, yes, yes. I, I guess I feel quite similarly. I also, I also keep a running list of books I've been intending to but not yet have <laughs> read. And I realize at some point that I better get serious about uh, reading all those books. Um, and that'll take a long time, I think. I wanted to talk to you about an article you wrote in 2014 that I recently tweeted out because I was preparing for this and I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is, this is also spot on. Um, and I guess I want to frame this because I think there is this kind of deep paradox of trials. On the one hand, on the one hand, which is the thing I like to beat on about, which is that there are so many important clinical questions, and I've been in this medicine business for just over a decade now, um, and gosh, I'm still very dissatisfied that we've made zero progress on these questions that I had back when I started. (laughs) I didn't know the answer to what should I do in this situation on rounds, and I still don't, I'm not any closer, and I'm not gonna get any closer, and I'm afraid, what I'm really fearful of is that I'm gonna finish my career and I'm gonna be no closer to the truth on this question than I was when I started. So I think that we, we really do have a lot of uncertainty, a lot of places in medicine where simple, large, randomized studies would answer questions that we face all the time in medicine. If we had an apparatus where we could systematically prioritize such questions and just do them large scale, we could answer these in a short period of time, and that's something that I beat on about all the time. Okay, but on the other hand, on the other hand, this is the article you write, Impact of Cancer Research Bureaucracy on Innovation, Costs, and Patient Care. 
On the other hand, it isn't so easy in the current regulatory environment to do even simple trials. You write this. Contemporary clinical trial processes are so arcane and Byzantine that a new industry has arisen to shepherd studies through the tangled regulatory underbrush. Commercial contract research organizations, or CROs. Burdensome auditing and documentation requirements mean that it's usually easier for pharmaceutical sponsors and academic medical centers to outsource data management to for-profit CROs, which introduce new hurdles for investigators and have been called by some, quote, a pro proliferating cancer within the cancer trials process, end quote. What a quote. Repeated queries from CROs about minutiae can seem financially self-serving to investigators, and it is unclear how often such compulsive oversight translates into improved trial quality or patient safety. As the result of the increasing regulatory requirements and the need for CROs, the cost of research per patient on a phase three oncology trial has ballooned from 3,000 to 5,000 in the early 1990s to 75 to 100,000 in 2013. In just three years, per patient clinical trial costs increased by 70% without reassurance that we are obtaining proportionally more quality for those research dollars. So I think you know what you're highlighting here is this paradox, which is, I guess one thing to say is, of course, bureaucracy perpetuates itself <laughs> because right. once these you know once these burdensome bureaucracy requires some for-profit entity to manage, of course they're going to have very vested interest in keeping it bureaucratic and hard to understand. For the simple reason H and R Block still exists, they don't want to let the IRS do your taxes for you. Right. <laughs> right. Um, on the other hand, this is a real burden. I mean. Gosh, I, I do sit, I mean, when, when I get into arguments with investigators about like some trial with some structural flaw in it, they say to me like, you know, this isn't easy what we're doing. And I wanna say, you're right. Like you are wasting a lot of your time doing this excessively bureaucratic thing. At the same time, I don't think that's a justification for having these structural flaws in the study that make it unable to answer the question. But I do concede people are working very hard in investigation. It's frustrating. Right. We could have a, a whole follow-up uh, discussion interview about uh, uh, clinical trial bureaucracy and about mm -hmm. uh, contract research organizations, uh, which are here to stay. CROs aren't going away. Right. Um, but th they certainly do um, add a great deal of um, headaches for investigators. Uh, often because they um, are following the letter of the law to an absurd extent and don't always have any clinical experience or understand, you know, how adverse event attribution actually works in the real world. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, a, a an area of... Um, of, of great messiness. Uh, somebody looked at the NCCTG um, clinical trials that uh, had placebos controlled and found, you know, huge amounts of adverse events attributed, were attributed yeah, to the, the study drug, even though it was a, a placebo. So, you know, they, they um, really do make things difficult. And, you know, these electronic data capture systems and all of the forms that one needs to sign off on it just it makes everything so difficult so i think you know this gets back a little bit to the entitlement that we were talking about if you've yes. gone through a trial yes. for three years and yes. you've done all this bureaucratic work and then the trial is a negative trial yes you're going to do your best to try to salvage something right, from that because right, right. it's just so depressing to think about I just did all of this and and you know wasted uh, wasted my time yeah. at the end of the day so I, I do think that is a a, a major uh, burden 
you know, institutions often make it worse for themselves than uh, than it, it needs to be. Yeah. Um, you know, we at Dana Farber have had a couple of uh, senior folks over the last few years who have been trying to tackle the number of activation steps for trials. So this is yeah. after a trial gets approved yeah. by the IRB, the contract's been signed, but now there's still dozens of steps where different committees have to sign off on it. You know, the radiation oncology uh, study review committee has to sign on it, even if the trial doesn't have radiotherapy in it. Um, you know, and uh, the, the, the pharmacy has to sign off on Makes the no on the, the electronic uh chemotherapy build and all this so you know the, there are so many of these steps and it it just all ends up adding time so once the trials IRB approved it can be months before it's in a point where we can en enroll the, the the first patient and I I really think that you know there, there's there's not really bad actors in yeah. this this is not an area where People are ill-intentioned. People are ill-intentioned yeah. or, you know, the, the Radiation Oncology Committee is not making any money on right, needing right. to sign off on a, on a clinical trial. But somebody at some point said, gosh, we really need to be part of this process because we don't want X bad thing or Y bad thing to happen. Again. And yeah, again, yeah, yeah. or maybe there was an event yeah, or yeah, a yeah. near miss. And so then, then, and then it just, it just all adds up. And, and, and it's, it becomes self-perpetuating. I mean, at, in 1945, the U.S. Navy had, I think, 30 um, ships for every admiral. Uh -huh. And now there are actually more admirals than there are ships because of the way the, the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy has, yeah. has grown. In the 1960s, the British Colonial Office reached its employee zenith at a time when there were no large colonies anymore to administer. All uh, of the big ones, you know, uh, India yeah. had gone in 1948 yeah. Yeah. and all the yeah. sub-Saharan African colonies yeah. in the in the. 50s and 60s and and uh, you know they they all they had left was Rhodesia and some islands and yet they had thousands and thousands of people yeah uh, in, in part of this colonial office so so things unless there's some external force brought to bear just tend to grow and mushroom grow. and I think that's also why um, why pharma is not even more profitable is that when you've enjoyed the lush and sustained profits for decades you've ballooned to an inefficient uh, system, and you have never faced real squeeze uh, that would force you to become efficient. But you know, I think there's almost no setting that captures um, the thinking that there was a near miss or something bad happened, and we need a policy so this never happens again, than the hospital, because in the hospital when those things happen, that's the first thing people think about, and then we just keep layering on more and more rules right. and checks and balances, and people forget the unintended consequences of all these checks and balances that, yeah, it might be you might curb this near miss on average, you know, some small degree over time, although it's often untested. But the downside might be you destroy human capital. You, you know, lead to so many other uh, unintended consequences. People are unlikely to order those therapies or do that thing because they don't want to go through that burdensome process. So they just <laughs> omit it entirely. I mean, you create these sort of perverse incentives. I think the QI field, you know, they, they really do struggle to, um, I think, do a good job of evidence-based recommendations. It's easy to be reactionary. It's hard to be, I think, prudent and thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, I, I really like the attribution of, of AEs is really interesting to me. In a randomized phase three trial, I always struggle to wonder, like, why are we hemming and hawing about attributing AEs? You just report AEs broadly and right. subtract the two. That's the whole point. You've got a comparator. You've got a comparator. you got a delta. That's what you do. And the more you play the game of attribution, I think you you you, you inject a, the, the sort of a deep human bias, which is what 
how we create causal links in our mind. Um, so I think it's got to be a clean way to handle that. Okay, the last question I wanted to ask you. What is cancer? No, I just, I mean, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I joke, but I, I was going to flesh out some thoughts that I've had, and then I'm going to get your reaction. You're a thoughtful person. You think about this. I think, you know, we spend so much time in cancer medicine, we, we forget the fact that, you know, we really do lack to some degree a nice, neat, canonical definition of what is cancer and what isn't cancer. Um, there are a number of sort of heuristics, rules of thumb that we use. Um, uh, you know, it's an it's a it's a it's a clonal disorder. It's 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 sustained proliferation. It's it's failure of immune surveillance. These are sort of some hallmarks of. And in fact, there is that legendary hallmarks of cancer paper. Um, but I think what people think it means is people think it means the identification of a process of tumor growing that will kill you. I think that's what the layperson thinks. You have cancer. Oh my gosh, I have a tumor process that will untreated kill me and perhaps even with treatment might still be the result of my death um, I think that's what people think about it and I think the more we think about it as as physicians we learn as you showed today um, that maybe it's not a light switch maybe it's a dimmer switch maybe there's different states of clonal proliferation and immune failure um, that correlate with different probabilities that this is going to be the life-limiting event and that deeper along the process where there's perhaps even more uh, more genomic damage and even impaired uh, immune surveillance, the probability that this is going to result in your death is really, really high. And so you might have DCIS on one end of the spectrum, which is at the end of the day might be a very unlikely to contribute to your death kind of event um, to, um, you know, end stage um, triple refractory multiple myeloma, which might very, very likely to attribute, contribute to your death. How do you, I mean, how do you conceptualize, can I mean, I think... Uh, 100 years from now, people are going to look back on us, and we're going to look like fools, of course, I think. that That's that's for certain. Uh, at least I will. I don't know about you, but I'm sure we'll look <laughs> foolish. But, I mean, I don't know. How do you how do you think about this disease itself? W what is it, uh, and, and, and where do we – are we trying to dichotomize something that isn't fundamentally a dichotomous thing? Um, you, you think a lot about CHIP. I think you're, you're getting into it. You know, where does the transition happen? This is one of the reasons I enjoy working with medical students because uh, they're not afraid to ask questions like that. Um, not just about what is cancer, but about other things that those of us who are more senior may have long ago learned to take for granted. Um, and, you know, these questions have meaning um, and I think are very fertile areas for for investigation and for um, for, for for thought um, so what what is cancer what is the hallmark of of cancer you know in the past we've said clonality was a hallmark of cancer right. but we have learned that um, there are lots of clonal states that have a very long natural history mm -hmm. and therefore um, 
aren't really fair to call them cancer. You know, colon polyps are clonal. They are clonal proliferations, as we've learned recently, in all of our organs with right. aging. Clonal hematopoiesis is, is uh, you know, detectable. If you use deep, sensitive uh, techniques, you can, you can find expanded clones in pretty much everybody by the time they get to their 50s and, and beyond. You know, at very low variant to low frequencies, but they're, they're there. And so, you know, clearly clonality, although it's part of cancer, it is not the be-all and end-all of cancer. You know, invasiveness, that's yeah, very... Even histopathology. Histopathology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, what, what is a squamous cell carcinoma of the skin? You know, that's a, that's a cancer. It's invasive. It, um, it's clonal. It, uh, and yet it's something that it's very rare to die of squamous cell carcinoma of right. the skin. Right, you know, very it's, rare. Uh, uh, so... I think it's it's something that we um, we wrestle with. Where is the sort of borderline between these um, completely benign conditions, obviously neoplastic conditions like you know late stage pancreas or lung cancer, or metastatic breast cancer, et cetera, and then you, you've got this whole sort of shadowlands in between yes. of, of things that have some features of cancer but not everything. Uh, but can still cause clinical problems for patients. You know, clonal hematopoiesis is a good example because yeah. it's a clonal state. It can kill people, but it doesn't kill people um, by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it contributes to cardiovascular events, and people have strokes and myocardial infarctions. It's a risk factor for those things, a risk factor as striking as hyperlipidemia or cigarette smoking. Um, but, you know, when we think of how does it kill in the oncology space, we think of progression to myelodysplasia or leukemia or less commonly lymphoid malignancy. So it really starts to become a, a semantic issue that is, isn't trivial, that I think is, is important for us to discuss and to talk about. You know, is, is CHIP a disease uh, or is it a state that happens with aging that's a risk factor for other things? Yeah. And, and even within the categories that historically um, denote lethal uh, terminal malignancies, the more you practice, you inevitably encounter people on that, you know, not the tail always as a result of therapy, but that natural tail of disease, right. the sort of indolent presentations of aggressive conditions that uh, you really struggle to, want, you know, ask yourself, is this, it's not behaving like anyone else who has this condition sort of thing. And those people preferentially tend to get on clinical trials uh, because course. they're stable enough. And we always have to think about that, as, as you've pointed yeah, out many yeah. times, when looking at results of trials, because we can misinterpret a drug as benefiting patients because we see this tail on the curve. When in fact, if they had gotten nothing, those, that, those patients might still have been there on the tail. Yeah, that's why I always hate the um, uh, median seven prior lines of therapy and what fraction had stable disease. I was like, well, it's going to be a lot because <laughs> right. they have had seven prior lines of <laughs> therapy. Because they're still with us. Yes. I, I think one of the interesting things about clinical medicine that kind of alludes to this this definition is that in, in a number of ways, um, we fall into this cognitive fallacy of putting genomic or histopathologic information above clinical presentation. Sometimes you see somebody and the behavior of whatever the process is, is proven to be indolent by time because I've observed this person. But then somebody walks in at the 11th hour and say, yeah, but they have a P53 mutation and it's supposed to be fast. I was like, yeah, it's supposed to be fast, but you've right. observed them and they're not presenting the way that typically goes. And in, in the minds of, I think, practitioners, we it is so easy to 
um, to take those objective data points that you know you can point to in in Epic and prioritize them in your mind over um, the experience of having followed someone through time, which isn't you know just a thing you click on in Epic. Uh, and so we can easily kind of I think overreact in those situations. Yes, uh, you know the longer that one practices, the more we see cases patients who who don't follow what we would expect uh, of their disease. Uh, I, I can think of a patient, and, and uh, he had a core binding factor leukemia, a lovely mm-hmm. man. Um, and I, I thought he was going to do well because he of was course. previously healthy, and he had, you know, he had an 821 translocation. And we know that you know, over 75% of those patients get into complete remission with induction therapy. And, you know, a substantial proportion, at least 40%, are cured. And so I shared with him these, these odds. And he was a primary induction failure, this man. Um, and, you know, he kept saying to me, and he, every time I'd come back and say, okay, you know, we've tried this third-line therapy and the blasts are still there. He's like, I thought I had the good kind of leukemia, right. you know. I, and and uh, it, when we see a patient and get the biology and uh, all we know is where they are at at that point in time. Right, and right. often time will tell us, um, mm-hmm. you know, how they're truly going to do. Yeah. I, uh, I have so many sort of similar examples from smoldering myeloma to, um, you know, uh, to CLL, to, uh, to mantle cell, to you name it, where, um, you know, you, you set out within your mind a certain on average path and mm-hmm. then people defy it in both directions oftentimes. Right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Steensma, I wish we had more time to talk, uh, but I, I hope listeners find this interesting. I, I found um, I found our discussion interesting, and I also found uh, going through your prior papers to be to be quite interesting. And so I do encourage listeners um, to go through some of those art of oncology papers and to go back to some of these old editorials. Um, I think uh, you know I always do enjoy uh, going back a decade or two and and just reading some of the old New England journals just to get a sense of how people thought about things back then. Um, it's educa- it, it it provides you an education in terms of you know perhaps seeing past the 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 day to day and some of the broader arcs of this profession. Um, and I think you've done a great service to the to the field. So thank you so much for for all that writing over the years and thanks for coming on this podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.